Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, verse 26 through 28, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, John chapter 1, verse 14. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now the serpent was craftier than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For further reference, Psalm chapter 19, 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 8. Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. The word of the Lord. So where do we even start? You know, like when talking about the Bible, where do you start? Um, I think the best place to start is with the question, why do we need God's Word? Now, that might seem like an odd place to start, but here's what I'm driving at. In asking that question, what I'm really getting at is, what is the worldview of the Bible? What's the worldview in which what the Bible has to say about itself makes sense? Or let me put it differently. What is the worldview in which revelation that is God revealing himself to flesh and blood human beings in time and space history. 
What is the worldview in which that not only makes sense, but is needed? And here's why this is so important. You really can't understand what the Bible is saying if you don't know the Bible's worldview. It's kind of like if you were to go hiking through the mountains without a map. Odds are you'll probably get lost. And even worst case, even like the best case scenario, you're going to miss so many things. You're going to miss beautiful outlooks. You're going to miss those fresh spring waters. You're, you're, you're just not going to be able to get out of it what you could if you had the map. And that's the same with the Bible. If you don't, have the, if you don't know the Bible's worldview, you might read the Bible and just go, I have no idea what this is saying. Or you might think you understand it, but you're actually misreading it, and you're not actually getting the treasure and the beauty that's right in front of you. And the truth is, guys, if we don't get today, the rest of this sermon series isn't going to make much sense. So this is the groundwork we have to do in order for us to really get out of this series what we need to. Okay? Everybody on board with me? All right. Choo-choo, train's leaving. Uh, So, where do we find the worldview of the Bible? Well, let me start by answering the question, what is a worldview? Just for anybody that doesn't know. If you don't know what a worldview is, we all have one. Your worldview is simply your framework, your grid for interpreting the world. It's the lens that you look at everything through. Okay? It answers those deep existential questions that we all have. Like, what is the nature of the universe that we live in? Uh, is there a God? And if so, what's he like? Uh, what, or, you know, what is that God like? Or is there good and evil? And if so, how do we know? And what are they? What is a human being? Right? Th- those kinds of questions are getting at your worldview. And the Bible has its own worldview. Uh, and it's actually a very unique worldview. It's, not, it's very, very different than all the other worldviews in history. Okay, and we've, it's all throughout Scripture. It saturates Scripture, but the place that it gets articulated and described most clearly is at the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In particular, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay, and in chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, we get what is called the creation narrative, the story of where everything came from. Okay, now, In order to actually read Genesis properly, you have to read it in context. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, Genesis, just like all the other books in the Bible, was not written in a vacuum. It didn't drop from outer space. It was written at a particular time and place in history. It was written within a culture, namely the culture of the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, there were lots of creation narratives. There were lots of different stories about where everything came from. But if you line them up side by side and you compare them, Genesis absolutely stands out from the rest. Because while all of the others are different, they're not that different. They have some key themes that they all share, some real fundamental similarities. So things like, well, an obvious one that we would notice right away is that all of the other ancient stories have many, many gods. Not one god, lots of gods. But 
let's go a little deeper than that. All of the other ancient Near Eastern stories begin with the birth of the gods themselves. The gods have had a beginning, right? And what's more, they were ontologically connected to the elements of nature. What? What I mean by that is the gods were made of the same stuff that the rest of the universe is, right? Time, space, matter, energy, for all you science-y people out there, the gods were made of that stuff, okay? And they were intertwined with, connected to the elements of nature. So like the sky was the body of a god. The sun itself was a god, and so was the moon. The, the god that governed the rivers and the oceans was in and made of water. You guys get what I'm saying? Okay, now because of that, the ancient Near Eastern gods were limited. They were finite. Yes, they were bigger than us, they were stronger than us, they could do more than we can, and they could see more than we could, but they couldn't see everything. They couldn't know everything. They couldn't do anything they wanted. You could trick them. You could lie to them. You could even kill them. And in fact, they had needs just like we do. They needed to eat. They needed to sleep. They needed relationships, copulation. They needed status and honor. Most of the ancient myths are about the gods fighting and jockeying with one another for supremacy over all the other gods. Okay? And so, creation, therefore, was motivated either by the gods seeking to fulfill their needs, or it was an accident. The gods were fighting and, whoops, out comes something. All right? And so ancient worship, and actually there's a lot of worship in our current day that's just like this, ancient worship was all about, okay, how do we meet the needs of the gods so that they will meet our needs? It was a tit for tat, it was an exchange, right? I think what might help is if I give you an example, and then we're going to compare that example to Genesis, all right? So, let's go with the ancient Egyptian story. In ancient Egypt... It begins with the waters. Now, don't think H2O, it's not the stuff we drink. It's a metaphor for chaos. Think about if you like reached down and tried to grab a fistful of water, what would happen? It would just run down everywhere, right? It's this idea of nothing holds together. It's all chaos and disorder and falling apart, right? Now, out of those waters of chaos, there rises for an inexplicable reason, a mound of dry land. There's this mound of dry land. And then out of that dry land, the very first god, Atum, pieces himself together. He creates himself from the land. So notice he's made of the same material as the land. He pieces himself together, and he looks around, and he's alone. And so what does he do? He spits. And out come these other gods who make up the elements of nature, sky, water, Got it? Now compare that to Genesis. Where does God come from in Genesis? In the beginning, God's already there. It's like he doesn't have a beginning. It's like he somehow always existed. And what's God's relationship to the waters of chaos? Is he struggling to fight his way out of the waters of chaos? Is he wrestling with the waters of chaos to create? No. What does verse 2 say? It says, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. 
The chaos doesn't affect God. He's not threatened by them. He stands in authority and power over them. And how does God create? Does the universe like drip from his body like a bead of sweat? Does, it, does he sneeze and, ooh, there's the universe? No. God simply speaks. And his word is so powerful that when he commands the swirling waters of chaos to bring forth light, the nothingness obeys him. There is no God like this God. There is no jockeying for position over him. He is absolutely, unequivocally in control. And why does God create? Well, it's not by accident, because, right, he speaks it into existence, but is he lonely? Is he bored? Is he, like, what's going on? Well, Genesis doesn't actually answer that question. God just creates. And the picture we get is God speaking into existence each element of nature. And with each day that goes by, God steps back, looks at what he has made, and says, that's good. It's almost as if God is an artist or a craftsman who he doesn't make because he has to. Nothing is compelling him to do so. He just does it because he wants to. He enjoys it. It's part of who he is. He is the creator. Are you starting to see the, the radical picture here? It's like there's this box, okay? Imagine this giant, almost infinitely sized box, okay? What's in the box? Everything. All of the stars, all of the planets, time, space, matter, energy, black holes, pulsars, quasars, our planet, you and me, and all the animals, and the bacteria, and the fungi, and all of it. And if you are a science fiction person, and you're like, well, what about all the infinite dimensions out there? They're in the box too, okay? Like the quantum realm, Wakanda, it's all in the box, okay? It's all in the box. Now, there is no existence outside of the box, Nothing lives outside of the box, and there's no getting out of the box. This is our universe. Well, there is one thing. There is one thing that is not inside the box, and it's the one who made the box, the one who owns the box, and the one who holds the box in his hand. God is a thing that's not like any other thing. He is totally and completely other. He is truly different. All of the, the laws and the rules and the limitations that apply to life in our box, they don't apply to God. He stands outside of them, and he doesn't need the box. He's not connected to the box. He's not dependent on the box. But we in the box are absolutely dependent upon him because he holds it. It's the best illustration that I think, uh, and you, this won't surprise any of you, comes from C.S. Lewis. Of course. Uh, it's actually on the front of your bulletin. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of a play. He says, you know, if you had, you know, take the Shakespeare play Hamlet, and Hamlet wanted to meet Shakespeare, how would he do that? 
right? It's not like Hamlet can walk up the stairs to the upper room and find Shakespeare there or travel to some distant land and meet him there. The only way that Hamlet ever gets to meet Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. Guys, that's exactly where we are. We can't get out of our own universe. We can't write ourselves out of our own story. We are stuck in the box. We have no access to God, except to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. And that is not easy. Let's not kid ourselves. That's actually a very difficult reality for us to accept. Because here's what that means. You and I, we have no bargaining chips with God. You can't bribe God. You can't manipulate God. You can't coerce Him into doing things your way. You can't get to God. You can't pray your way to God. You can't church your way to God. You can't Bible read your way to God. You can't experience your way to God. You can't, like, meditate your way to God. You can't feel your way to God. You can't think your way to God. You cannot reach God unless God reaches you first. And God is not obligated to do that. God doesn't owe us our existence. He created us. He doesn't owe you your life. He doesn't owe you a good life. He doesn't even owe you an explanation. He doesn't owe you an answer to the difficult questions of your life. We are wholly and utterly dependent upon His initiation and His disposition to do so. Why do we need God's Word? We need God's Word because He's the Creator, and we are the creation, and we have no access to God except to the degree that He chooses to reveal Himself. But there's another reason that we need God's Word, and that actually comes at the end of chapter 1 and gets fleshed out in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where we get the creation of human beings, right? The question of what's a human being, that gets answered in Genesis. Um, Now, Here's what's interesting. God speaks everything into existence, and he could have just like, you know, sat back and just kind of watched the world go by, but he doesn't do that. He comes, he enters the box, and he speaks again. Why does he do that? Well, if you look in that second section, the end, chapter, uh, verses 26 through 28 in Genesis chapter 1, God creates human beings in his image, and then he comes to them, and he speaks, and he says, here's your job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Now, if you have not been with us in the past, let me just clarify, dominion here does not mean domination. It's not oppression. It is loving, careful management, stewardship, okay? So, God gives us this command, right? Now, what is he doing there? Why is God speaking? Well, I see, I, what, the way I see it is God is giving us two things here, and they're connected. He's giving us a unique identity that leads to a unique purpose, right? Like, God says we are made in the image of God. Now, we could do a five-week sermon series on that, and all of the implications and what that means. It's a 
It is a loaded term in the Bible, and we talk about it a lot here. But for our purposes this morning, to be made in the image of God means we're special. Now, we're in the box, okay? We didn't get out of the box. We're still in here, and we're part of the whole system, but we're somehow different. We're somehow unique. As, a, as individuals and as a species, we're, we have a special place, a special role to fill within the box. And because of that, we have a special job, a job that no other creature in the entire box has. Okay, we're not going to talk about what that is. That's another sermon. But we have this special role, right? Um, now, here's the thing. We all long for identity and purpose, don't we? That is a uniquely human desire. And regardless of your culture, your age, your gender, we all have that deep gnawing question of who am I and why am I here? And that's a unique, bleh, bleh. that is a uniquely human experience, right? You will never find a blue whale sitting around going, who am I? Why am I here? Why? Because blue whales don't care who they are or why they are. They're just happy being blue whales. It is us that have those crises of identity and purpose, right? But here's the thing. What Genesis is showing us is that we only get to our identity and our purpose in the context of relationship with our Creator where He tells us who we are and why we are. And that is a countercultural thing to say because in our culture, here in the West, what our culture says is, you have a unique and special identity, and the way you find it out is you look inward, and you look deep down at your deepest, darkest desires and what's going on inside of you, and you do that introspection thing, and then you discover who you are. And once you've discovered who you are, your purpose then is to go and present that unique identity to the world, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. Isn't that like every Disney movie ever made? right? But the problem is, Genesis says, uh, you can't actually know who you are unless God tells you. You, In the same way you don't have access to God, you don't actually have access to yourself without God's help. Now, maybe you're not Western, maybe you're from a more traditional culture, some of us are. Uh, Traditional cultures tend to take more of a collectivist view. They say, okay, not, maybe you, maybe or maybe not, you have a unique individual identity, but we as a collective have an identity. And so when your role or your purpose in that collective is to fill your role, we, your family, your culture, your tribe, we tell you who you are and what you're supposed to do. Do your duty, do your dharma, fill your place, right? But Genesis pushes back on that too. Genesis says, no. The only person who has the right to tell you who you are and why you are is God himself. Why do we need God's word? We need God's word because he's the creator and we are the creation and we have no access to God except to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. And 
We need God's word in order to have life and identity and purpose. But there is one more reason that we need God's word. And that comes in Genesis chapter 3. And for those of you that know your Bible, Genesis chapter 3 is where we get the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And we get introduced to God's enemy, the serpent, Satan, who we call the devil. Now, I want to acknowledge that there are probably some bodies in this room that might have a hard time believing in the actual existence of a literal Satan, okay? And that's a perfectly legitimate question to have, and I would love to discuss that with you. I don't have really time to get into it this morning. So come see me after. We can grab coffee. We can talk about it. But for right now, let's suspend our disbelief. And let's assume the possi- that there is at least the possibility that if there is a creator God that's invisible, supernatural creator God out there, that there could also be supernatural beings that we can't see, who, some of whom are evil. Okay? Now, who is Satan? Who is he? Well, he is the enemy of God. But keep in mind, he's in the box. Okay? Satan is not the yang to God's ying. He's not the, like, high to his jekyll. This is not, you know, God, he's not the opposite of God. He is inside the box. He's created just like you and me. Okay? But Satan didn't like God being the one who holds the box in his hand. He wanted to hold the box in his hand. And so he is now at war with God. And he hates God. And because he hates God, he hates the image of God. And he wants to eradicate it from the face of the earth. Do you ever stop and think about that, folks in the room that are, that are Christians and, and believe these things? Do you ever stop to think, Satan hates you? And he wants to destroy you because you resemble the one with whom he is at war? But how does he do that? How does Satan destroy us? He goes for the source of our life and our identity and our purpose. Satan destroys us by attacking the Word of God. Look at chapter 3. What does Satan say? He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What's he doing there? He's doubting, or he's he's distorting God's Word, right? Because it makes it sound like God's stingy and overly strict and unreasonable. Eve responds, no, 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 no. We can eat from the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from the one tree. And the day we eat of that tree or touch it, that's the day we will die. Then Satan doubts. He says, you, you're not surely going to die. Right? God's lying. And then Satan goes for the kill. He says, God knows that the day you eat of that tree, you will know good from evil. You will be like God. What's he saying there? What's, what's, the t- what's he presenting to Eve? He's saying, Eve, you don't have to live in God's box. You, you can have your own box. You can have life and identity and purpose for yourself and on your own terms. Just take and eat. And unfortunately, Eve and her strangely absent husband, Adam, they buy into that lie. And 
what was the consequence? Death. From the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, death entered the human experience. And not just physical death. Yes, it does include physical death, but it's more than that. It's also spiritual death. We displaced, we rejected God's word and tried to live by our own word, and so we lost the relationship we had with our creator. We got kicked out of the garden. We can no longer talk to God face to face. We no longer have the relationship in which we are told and given our identity and our purpose. So now, all of us, every single day of our lives, are scrambling, trying to build and create an identity for ourselves. And that leads to relational death, where we're so busy trying to build an identity and a purpose for ourselves that no longer do we love and honor and serve one another in mutual care and respect, but we lie to each other and we manipulate each other and we abuse and we take advantage of each other and we shoot each other in malls. We cooperate with Satan in annihilating the image of God from the face of the earth. And we also experience creational death. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We have things like plagues and famines and natural disasters that eradicate communities, and we make everything worse by polluting and exploiting the world around us. It's as if, because every single one of us wake up and we spend our days distorting and doubting and trying to displace God's word with our own, it's like we're plunging the world back into the swirling waters of chaos from which we were created. But hallelujah, hallelujah, we don't get the final word. Satan, the enemy, does not get the final word. Our God's word came first and it will come last because his word became flesh and it dwelt among us. You see, friends, God loves his box so much that he became one of us. And he took on our limitations. He accepted the rules and the laws within the box. And he lived life the way we were supposed to. He never once distorted or doubted or displaced God's word with his own. And then he went to the cross and had, and he experienced the death and the silence from God Almighty that we deserved. And it crushed him. But then three days later, the Lord Jesus rose up in victory over death so that we can experience the word of God again. We can have our life, our identity, our purpose restored to us. And there is a day coming when that word will come for the last time, and he's going to once and for all fix the fallout from all of our distortion and doubting and displacing of God's word. Why do we need God's word? We need God's word because he's the creator and we're the creation, and we don't have access to God except to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. And we need God's word to give us life and identity and purpose. 
And we need God's Word to rescue us from trying to distort and doubt and displace God's Word with our own. The Lord Jesus was so committed to giving you God's Word that He went through torture and death. Are you willing to listen? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your...